Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Um, okay, so this past week, uh, we had a newcomer's dinner, uh, which we do every month. And if you've never been to one, I want to invite you to our next one. It's a time to get to know my wife and I and just connect and hear more about Christ Church. Um, but one of the things we normally do is hear everybody's church background, um, which usually entails kind of what your spiritual upbringing was like. And for some people, they didn't go to church growing up. Some people went to different types of churches. And it's always, I love hearing people's spiritual background story. Uh, but one woman who was at our newcomer's dinner, who I won't name because I forgot to ask her if I could share the story and I don't want to pick on her. And sharing her testimony, she said, I had this varied up and down journey of faith. But when I was in college, I had a lordship moment. And uh, she kept on telling her story, and I didn't stop it, but I have not stopped thinking about how she described that. Uh, it wasn't like I decided to start following Jesus, even though I'm sure she did. It wasn't I met Jesus, even though I'm sure she did. She said, I had a lordship moment. Whoa. And I imagine she meant that she didn't just start studying Jesus as a historical figure or as a philosopher, but that she encountered Jesus as Lord. And when she encountered Jesus as Lord, it forced her to reckon with her life at that point where she was heading in her life and how she was going to process her life. She had a lordship moment. Don't you love that? So I'm poaching it, and uh, I'll ask her afterwards if it's okay, and I'll give her credit for it. Um, but you might have noticed tons of king, kingship themes in our service so far, and it will continue. Uh, and that is because today is Christ the King Sunday. Yay. We follow the, the life of Christ in the Christian church calendar, which a lot of different denominations do. It's not only our tradition. Uh, but we walk, we journey through Christ's life and the life of the church every single year, and it comes to this crescendo on this day where we celebrate and remember that Christ is King. So this is the culmination of the whole Christian year. And on this Christ the King Sunday, amidst a lot of really beautiful readings, we are reading the absolutely glorious and mysterious conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And in this story, Pilate has a lordship moment. Amen. Or you might say he has a kingship moment with the king of kings. And my prayer today is that as we study this glorious passage, we would all, even now, have a lordship moment. Amen. Doesn't that sound exciting? Pray with me and let's dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus, would you reveal your kingship this morning and all of its power and authority, and meekness, and beauty. Holy Spirit, we ask you to minister to us individually and as a body this morning, and we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so go to John. If you've got a Bible, open up to John 18. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed there in your bulletin. What page is the, the gospel reading on? So go to page 9. Um, this little story with Jesus and Pilate is really structured where, where Pilate asks a question, Jesus answers the question, and then Pilate responds to Jesus' answer. So we're going to begin with Pilate's question. Look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
This all begins, this story, with simple political investigation. Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea, uh, meaning he's the supreme local manifestation of authority in that area. Now, Pilate doesn't necessarily like Judea, uh, and we know from history that he was actually a pretty harsh ruler towards the Jews. But like all Roman politicians, he's playing a political game. He's in Rome. He's trying to work his way up the Roman ladder. And as a governor, he's trying to do the best job he can to keep the peace and make himself look good so that he can go back to the eternal city one day and have a better job. Uh, so this would be like an up-and-coming politician being sent to a foreign embassy for a couple years. And even if they didn't like the area, they would agree to it and they would want to do a good job there in that embassy that they could come back and then climb in Capitol Hill. So this is just another day in the life for Pilate. Now, Pilate was put in a very interesting time in history, and he has remained in the creed ever since. But for him, it was just another day in the life. I, I picture uh, Pilate getting up in the morning, washing his face, and looking at his iPhone calendar to see what's on my docket today. And he sees, oh, I have a meeting with Jesus of Nazareth. There's another religious squabble uh, from the Jewish religious world that I have to deal with and investigate in. Another insurrectionist. Here we go again. Now, yes, his wife did have a foreboding dream, and some of you might remember that. Um, so there's a level, I think, of genuine curiosity in Pilate when he's coming to ask a question to Jesus, but it is mixed with business as usual. So he meets Jesus, and he's like, okay, are you a king? What's the deal here? That's kind of how he starts his, his question. But then, shockingly, Jesus responds by investigating him back. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Now, this is wild. Jesus is on trial to be ruthlessly executed within a matter of hours, and he is literally talking to the only person who has the power to change or, or affirm that verdict. But you don't see Jesus groveling or trying to escape his death here. He's already grappled in Gethsemane. He's processed his own doubts and fears. And at this point, he is utterly fixed on freely laying his life down for the life of the world and obeying the will of his father. He's willingly chosen to lay him down. And so instead of using this moment to do anything he can to try and evade his death, Jesus uses it to prod into Pilate's soul. And I just love this about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? He has the emotional space, even in this moment, to see Pilate. And this is such a cool thing. Jesus does this all day on Good Friday. He's ministering to people the whole time. Uh, you think he's taking care of his mom. He's ministering to the, the, the thief on the cross next to him. But in this moment, he is looking into Pilate's soul. And here's the essence of what I think Jesus takes the time to ask Pilate. Pilate. Why are you here? Pilate, is this politics, or do you really actually want to know if I'm a king? At face value, Jesus does want to know what he means by the word king. You know, I don't think that word means what you think it means. There's, king can mean a lot of different things. And Jesus is saying, what are you asking? However, on a deeper level, I really do think Jesus is doing something that he loves to do 
which is gauging and interested inquirer's level of openness to the truth. He's pressing Pilate to see if he finds even a sliver of actual spiritual curiosity and openness, which is why this passage is so fascinating, right? This freaks out Pilate right away. It it freaks him out. He is used to seeing people grovel and plead and kiss his rings in this situation, right? But Jesus' security and his poise, his authority, knock him on his back foot. He's the one who's supposed to be asking the questions, right? He's the one, you know, he's the investigator. Jesus is in the dock, not him, not him. And yet all of a sudden, Pilate is on the ropes. And we sense this insecurity and unsettledness in Pilate's response to Jesus's question. So look at verse 35. Pilate answered him, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And that's basically him snapping back saying, you think I care about this? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The only reason I'm here is because your people handed you over to me. You're just on my political to-do list. You think I care about your religious infighting? Pilate does not like the fact that Jesus takes it from the political to the personal, which is exactly what Jesus does. Let me say that again. Pilate does not like the fact that Jesus takes it from the political to the personal. Now, here's the thing. All of us are like Pilate. We're busy. We get up and go from one thing to the next. Some of you might have had a really busy and insane morning. For those of you with small children, it's always Armageddon trying to get to church in general, and you barely get there, right? Even my wife can attest to that. But in life, we're busy. We go from one thing to the next. At some point, you might come into contact with Jesus. You might even start reading your Bible. You might even go to church. And we're there to learn about Jesus, to assess him, to see if we like him, to see if he checks out with us, if he's God or if he's a philosopher. We investigate Jesus. But Jesus has this way of when we least expect it, of looking back at us and making it personal. So what if Jesus entered this room right now and looked at you or looked on the live stream and said, why are you here? Do you really want to know the truth? Or are you just here, I love what Jesus says, because somebody told you to be here? I used to work at a church in Sheffield, England, in North England, which many of you know, and they were really, they were in the heart of the city, and so whether they liked it or not, we just had all kinds of people coming through our doors, and I met so many fascinating people on the Pilgrim's Way, and I was fascinated why people came to church. One time I met this guy who had just spent so much time reading every Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens book he could find and watching all the YouTube videos about new atheism and why Christianity was a cult and it was awful. And he just got so pumped, he just wanted to fight. He just wanted to argue with somebody. So he literally came to church to just say everything he knew about Christianity. It was, like, fascinating. I knew another guy one time who literally wanted to learn more about Jesus because he felt like he was a Messiah figure, and he wanted to, like, learn about it, which was terrifying. Kid you not. He was, like, picking up, you know, skills. But then some people are there because they were hungry and they were genuinely searching. 
other people were there because they were lost and they didn't know what they were searching for, but they just happened to be in the seats. If Jesus asked you why you were here, what would you say? I think the next step for you and your spiritual journey might be learning the answer to that question. I'm just here because my parents forced me to be here. I'm here because I'm intrigued by Jesus, uh, but I'm investigating him. I want to see what he's about and what he's like. I'm here because a long time ago, I really did have a lordship moment and I started to follow Jesus, but now I'm really not sure why I'm here. I just do this. I got to this point in my sermon prep, and I kid you not, my, my hands started shaking because I had to ask, why am I writing this sermon? <laughs> am I studying John 18 in order to be able to tell you guys something, and that's just my job? Or am I interested in knowing Jesus, right? The point of Jesus' question towards Pilate and towards you is not condemnation. There's not a right or wrong answer to that question. So everybody exhale. The point of Jesus' question is invitation. He wants to press you to see if there's an openness there to the truth. Do you really want to know? Jesus gives Pilate, don't miss this, Jesus gives Pilate an opportunity to stop his politics for a second, his crazy life, and have a lordship, kingship moment. Jesus is loving Pilate by investigating him back. It is really, really easy to constantly put yourself in the power position over others and over God and over all information. We do it instinctively. It's easy to stiff arm the truth by perpetually asking questions. It's uncomfortable to open yourself up to Jesus questioning you and investigating you, but it leads to life. Amen? After sizing up Pilate, whatever Pilate's response, Jesus is is gauging him here. And he chooses to do something he chooses not to do with with Herod, which is to actually respond and give him an answer. So when Jesus is before Herod, he doesn't even respond to Herod. But with Pilate, he goes into it. And he, what he does is he talks about his kingdom first by saying what it is not, And then he defines it by what it is. So he kind of gives this positive and negative answer to his kingship. So let's look at first what he says his kingdom is not in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world or sorry, not from this world. So he says, my kingdom is not of the world. My kingdom is not from the world. This is a very mysterious, beautiful saying of Jesus. But what is very clear about it is this. Jesus is saying to Pilate, Pilate, don't worry. I'm not a competing insurrectionist political king. I'm not going after your power, Pilate. My kingdom, my domain of absolute reign and authority is above you and beyond you and Caesar and Caiaphas. I'm not a political pawn. I'm not playing political games. My kingdom is from a different place and it is of a different nature. And he proves this by pointing out, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting with swords. They would be doing the normal kingdom thing, right? 
every kingdom, every nation, every world order is established through the sword and upheld by the sword. That's how Rome started, right? That's how America started, through the sword, through muskets. People fight to conquer a land, and then the leaders get into office either through the sword or votes or both, often. But not so for Jesus' kingdom, he says. There's only one time a person picks up a sword in the Gospels to defend Jesus, and that's Peter, when he cuts off the servant's ear when he's being arrested, and Jesus immediately rebukes him. So Jesus' kingdom is not established by the sword. It is not threatened by the sword. On the contrary, and much to the dismay of tyrants everywhere and throughout history, the sword cannot touch the kingdom of God. Right? It's like when Jesus uh, is talking about treasure, and he says, don't invest your treasure in earthly barns where people can steal it, and it can rust, and it can be stolen, and it goes away. Invest in the kingdom where it's eternal, and nobody can steal it, and rust can't get it. So it is with the kingdom of God. All the kingdoms of the earth will pass away, all of them. They're all fragile and temporal, but Jesus' kingdom is unshakable and eternal and unassailable. It is from a different place. It is of a different nature. And who knows what Pilate actually thought from that? You know, if you were hearing that from the first time, it's hard to think, how did Pilate handle that information? Um, But at least he realizes that Jesus is saying that, after all, he has a kingdom, which must mean that Jesus thinks of himself as a king, right? So he reiterates his first question in verse 37. So you are a king? He finally says back. He's like trying to track, like that was really deep, but let me just ask my question again. You are actually a king? And Jesus responds again, this time defining his kingdom positively. So look at verse 37b or the latter half of verse 37. You guys there? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Again, this is a very mysterious answer from Jesus, but here is what is clear about what he says. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth. It's a kingdom of heavenly realities. From wherever Jesus' kingdom is from that he's referring to, he says that he came here, was born here in this world from there, was purposely born from there to bear witness to the truth and that everyone who is of the truth listens to him and joins his kingdom. And again, this sets Jesus' kingdom apart from all other kingdoms of the earth. No other kingdom or nation or political party is ultimately about truth. None of them. All nations are about specific people and places. They have boundaries. They have priorities. And they're not always necessarily aligned with the truth or heavenly realities. The Democratic and Republican parties are not parties of truth, despite what they may say. They both have agendas to accomplish, constituencies to allure and appease and people to keep in office. Put simply, they're political. This is not to say that all politics are full of falsehood or are not true, even though sometimes they are. But they are certainly not only about bearing witness to the truth. Does that make sense? 
No party, no kingdom is ultimately about what is true in eternal realities except for the kingdom of God. He is all about establishing and protecting what is true and what is real in heaven and on earth. And though Jesus is not there to fight Rome or to conquer territory with the sword, his kingdom of truth certainly has an enemy, and he was certainly born to conquer a territory as a king. The enemy is the devil whom the Bible calls the father of lies. Falsehood and lies are the opposite of truth. The territory that Jesus came to conquer and invade is what the Bible calls the domain of darkness, which is the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. So just as it would be a misunderstanding to think that Jesus's kingdom was just about swords and earthly politics, which is a misunderstanding that some people have made, it would also be a misunderstanding to think that Jesus's kingdom was therefore just a state of mind or about peace and love and a certain way of thinking, which has also been a mistake throughout history. Jesus is a warrior king, but the war that he is waging is above and beyond the petty wars that we fight. It is, as Ephesians says, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wolf. And this is what Jesus is communicating to Pilate. No, Pilate, I'm not Che Guevara. I'm not Attila the Hun. I'm not coming after Caesar's throne. But Pilate, listen, I'm a king of a much bigger kingdom than that. It's different than that. I'm fighting a much bigger war. Pilate, do you really want to know? Do you really want to peer into this kingdom? Pay attention, Pilate. There is more than meets the eye. And I was convicted as I was studying this that I think we need to be reminded of this on this Christ the King Sunday. We often are consumed by earthly politics, by culture. We are often tempted to shrink or despiritualize the kingdom of God into something that we can understand or control. Amen? But there's more than meets the eye that's happening in our world. There are kingdoms, brothers and sisters, above kingdoms. There are rulers above rulers. And this is why, like I said last week, we need apocalyptic literature, like we need veggies on our dishes as kids growing up. Another, last week we had some intense readings, and this week we still get Daniel and Revelation, and next week it's going to continue. Because the ministry of Revelation and Daniel, in particular in the Bible, if you're newer to the Bible, is that they give us a prophetic lens to see the above and the beyond where Jesus' kingdom is from. We get to see for a moment a glimpse of what's really going on in the heavenly places that Ephesians talks about. Through that prophetic lens, we see how small the nations really are, right? In Daniel, you get this sweep of kingdoms that rise and fall and come and go, and you get the same in the book of the Revelation. 
and we see how fiercely the kingdom of God is waging war against the darkness. You actually get to see it. Let me give you an example. My favorite example of this is the nativity story. When we think of Mary birthing Jesus, and we're about to do it for four weeks, um, well, it's been a lot longer than that because they start playing Christmas music in like September now, which is wrong. It's unbiblical. It should wait till the Feast of Christmas, okay? Anyways, I digress. When we think of Mary birthing Jesus, we think of Silent Night, right? I love Silent Night too. That's how we're going to finish Lessons and Carols. We think of how wild it was that they were so poor they couldn't even have a place where she could have her baby. And we think about being, them being caught up in between, you know, Rome and Jerusalem and all these things. But in Revelation 12, we read about the vision of the woman and the dragon, How many of you are familiar with the vision of the woman and the dragon? Okay, a couple. It's not exactly on the New York Times bestselling list, okay? Because it's kind of crazy. But in this vision, there's a woman who is crying out in birth pains and in the agony of labor. And before her is literally a great red dragon standing in front of the woman, waiting for the baby to be born so the dragon can devour the child as soon as it's born. But by the grace of the God, the child is swept away up to heaven and is kept safe. And the woman is whisked away to be cared for by God and protected in the wilderness. And then a war breaks out in heaven. And the dragon is so furious that he couldn't devour the child that he starts waging war on all the other offspring of the women. So listen, more is going on at Christmas than you think. Okay? It's not as simple as just Mary and Joseph and cows. Literally, like the cosmic powers are clashing at that moment. The devil has always hated God, and therefore he hates God's image, which is us. And because he hates God's image in the life of humanity, the devil hates the womb, which is the cradle of life, of the image of God. And so the devil has always attacked the woman and the child. So there was more going on when Moses was born, and there was literally a genocide of children in Egypt. There was more going on when Jesus was born, and Herod was trying to kill all the children in Egypt. And still today, the devil is after the womb and the child. And that is why one of my brother's professors always put a red dragon in his nativity set. (laughs) So he could remember Here's what's really happening here. Look at the painting on the front of your bulletin. I love when we have the opportunity. I don't know where mine, oh, there it is, okay. I love when we have the opportunity to incorporate art because it helps us to ponder some of these things. This is by a Russian painter. I love how Pilate is in his beautiful Roman garb, and Jesus here looks like the essence of weakness and insignificance, right? And this helps us understand the dynamic of this conversation. Okay, so you're a king. Pilate is asking Jesus, who's sitting there, looking so weak and frail. And yet, there's more going on than meets the eye in this picture. Amen? On the dawn of this morning, there was more that Pilate didn't know about that Jesus was beginning to reveal to him. Little did he know that Jesus, through his suffering and shame, was on the precipice of trampling hell and Satan under his feet. 
Jesus's ministry begins at his baptism, and at his baptism, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and that is his anointing to become king. That is when he was set apart for kingship, just like if you've ever read the Old Testament, Samuel finds David, and before he becomes king, he anoints him to be king. So when David's anointed, whoa, he just got set apart to become king at a later time. And then he goes straight into the wilderness, and that, that is him entering into the devil's territory. It's like D-Day. Jesus is making a beachhead into the domain of darkness when he faces the devil in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, and he defeats him there. And then throughout his ministry, he's casting out demons, he's liberating people, he's healing people one by one, and that is like the slow, steady march towards Berlin. He's taking over territory. Jesus and the, the demoniac uh, in Mark 5 is him entering into the darkest part, a stronghold, and him breaking it open with light. Isn't that amazing? And he sets his face towards Jerusalem, just like the Allied powers set their face towards Berlin. And in a way that is just still hard to comprehend, no matter how many times you hear the story, when Jesus is beaten and mocked, and given mocking royal purple robes and a crown of thorns of suffering, that is his coronation. That is him finally being crowned as king. And the first act he does as king is through his passion to vanquish his enemy, whose power was the bondage of sin and death and the deceitfulness of lies. And by his resurrection, he ushers in a new world order. Amen? That's what's going on. This is still going on today. Do you know that when Paul was speaking to new Christians who just had their own lordship moment somewhere and they became Christians in the little town of Colossae, I think that's how you say it, that's where we get the book of Colossians from, here's what he tells them what actually happened to them. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemptions and the forgiveness of sins. So the ministry of Jesus is redeeming us from slavery to the father of lies, from our bondage to sin and darkness, and transferring us, which I need to study that more, but I bet it has something to do with like citizen, citizenship language, right? Like you would transfer yourself to another domain, to his kingdom where truth reigns, where it's a kingdom of light. So listen, on Christ the King Sunday, be reminded that Christianity is cosmic. It is eternal. It is of the utmost importance to all of us. So we're in Edgewood College. We're a small church. I don't know all of you. We're all busy. We're going on our lives. But now is a good time to be reminded that there's more going on that meets the eye. Now let's talk about Pilate's response. I don't think Pilate got all of that in that moment. <laughs> um, I think that would be adding a lot to this story. This story asks you to enter into it and think about it because it's almost cryptic. But I don't think he got all of that. But what Pilate does realize at the course of this conversation is that Jesus is no ordinary insurrectionist and that Jesus is a king and his kingdom is above and beyond. He is absolutely picking that up. And I think it starts to work on him. He starts to feel it. He starts to sense that Jesus is inviting him 
to peer into more eternal, significant things than just political squabbles. And in particular, verse 37 really scares him and freaks him out, where Jesus says he came to bear witness to the truth and that those who are of the truth listen to him. Because when Jesus says that, it forces Pilate into a dilemma. And that is, well, am I of the truth? Do I want to listen to Jesus' voice? Or do I want to clamp this conversation shut and go on with my life? He's forced to decide, do I want to continue to invest myself in the empire of Rome or in the kingdom of God? And that is what the kingdom of God requires when it comes upon you. Action, decision, an immediate shifting of the will. Whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, and he does it all the time in the gospels, it's always with an immediacy to it. No one who puts his hand on the plow, you know, and turns back is fit for the kingdom of God. Like now, you got to go. It's at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel is what Jesus said. Pilate, I don't think was expecting this to happen in this conversation. He wasn't expecting Jesus to make it personal all of a sudden. He wasn't expecting a lordship moment. And so I think if you're looking at your gospel text, in between verse 37 and 38, there's a little space, just a white space. And I think in that moment, eternity flashes before Pilate. I really do. It's a moment of grace. It's this moment of invitation that Christ, with blood dripping down his face from a crown of thorns, is offering to Pilate in that moment. Do you want to be somebody who listens to the truth? But at that moment, it gets too hot for Pilate. He can't handle it. It gets too close and intense, and he leaves the offer on the table, and then look at verse 38, how it ends. So iconically, Pilate said to him, what is truth? I used to think um, he was really asking this, and Jesus like just wouldn't answer him. You know, Pilate's like, what's truth? Like, Jesus, what's truth? Just tell me. I really want to know what truth is. And Jesus is like, nope, not going to do it. But actually, uh, if you're reading the story right after this moment, Pilate himself pivots and walks back outside. Um, so this is a mic drop moment for Pilate. It's like when you're arguing with somebody on the phone and you're like, and you say that last thing and then you hang up so you can have the last word. It's like, yeah, well, you don't care anyway, you know, and you hang up. I think it's the equivalent of that. Pilate is essentially saying like truth. Who, who has time for truth? What is truth anyway? You know, it's all about Caesar and the mob and shadows and dust. Mic drop, and he walks back outside. Now, listen, I don't judge Pilate. Um, it's, it's so, he's such an interesting character. Uh, he's demonized by some people. Uh, in the Ethiopian church, they actually made him a saint, and he has his own feast day, which is wild. So he, his character is so conflicted, it's human, right? And you have, you have some compassion for him. He did go out and tell the crowd, I don't find this man to be guilty. He did. Jesus made a big enough impression on him that he washed his hands. But brothers and sisters, we don't want to be like Pilate. When you have a lordship moment, when eternity flashes before you, when you have the opportunity to know the truth and be set free by the sun, you don't want to hang up the phone. Amen? So what about you? Why are you here? 
do you really want to know? Oh, that we all might have a lordship moment, even now. Maybe today is the day you stop investigating and asking questions. Constantly asking questions about everything and constantly having every, everything be up for the de debate is a way to stiff arm ourselves from answers and from the truth and often from Jesus' lordship. Maybe today is the day that you let Jesus ask you some questions back. I'm going to pray in a second, and we're going to have this whole service. We're going to continue to, to pray into Jesus' kingship, to worship him. And if the Holy Spirit is doing anything in you, we're going to have some prayer ministers back there during worship. And I would love for you, as a simple action, to go pray into that with them. They'll pray with you confidentially about anything, just to say, can you help me open myself up a little bit if you're having a lordship moment? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.